0: welcome to excess returns where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor justin Carboneau and jack Forhand our principles at Lydia capital management the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Lydia capital no information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. hey guys this is justin in this episode of excess returns jack and i sit down with joe wiggins author investor and leading authority in the field of behavioral finance and investor psychology Joe's new book, The Intelligent Fund Investor, Practical Steps for Better Results in Active and Passive Funds, is the base of our discussion, and we work through how investors can avoid some of the biggest mistakes when investing in funds and how to set themselves up for better long-term outcomes. Joe offers up some important and practical advice that all investors can learn from. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Joe Wiggins. Also, we'll give one lucky winner at random a free copy of Joe's book if you like the podcast and send us the correct answer to the following question. What are the three things Joe would look at when trying to determine if a fund manager has an edge, or said another way, how does one identify a manager with skill versus one that has just been lucky? Hi, Joe. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be on again. Um, you have a new book out. It's called The Intelligent Fund Investor. I have my copy here, and this book is about um, making good decisions and uh, when selecting funds or investment strategies um, from our own biases to thinking long-term to not chasing performance i mean there's a lot of important and practical i think behavioral and sort of investor psychology points that you highlight and that you bring up throughout the book it's about i think making good decisions and avoiding um bad ones and so hopefully investors that listen to our discussion today um and probably you know struggle with a lot of the things that we're going to talk about go out and support joe and um you know buy this book it's 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 pretty easy to get through and there's a lot of uh valuable uh investing i think wisdom in this um and i think people can learn from joe's thoughts and insights and he writes one of the uh popular blogs on the internet as well focusing on uh behavioral finance but so thanks joe for joining us this is going to be a good good discussion i think um and i i think to start maybe if you could just kind of share with our audience uh, a little bit more in your background um, in fund investing and selecting funds and what brought you to write the book?
1: Absolutely. And thanks for the kind introduction. So I started my investment career in 2004 after I left university. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I left university. And I, I fell into a career in fund manager research um, through randomness and chance rather than by any, any design. Um, but as I progressed in my career, I was more and more fascinated by people and behavior and that element of markets and whether that's the behavior of groups of people in terms of overall market behavior or individuals in terms of the fund managers that I was talking to and meeting. And that's the direction I've tried to take my career in. That's always the lens I've looked through when assessing investment opportunities. Um, I did a master's in behavioral science um, in 2016 at the London School of Economics um, and then started writing the blog, Behavioral Investment. Dot com, where I was trying to bring together learnings of behavioral science and behavioral finance with what I was seeing and experiencing in financial markets on a, on a day-to-day basis. And then I got approached by Harriman House, who are a, a publisher of, of finance books primarily, and they asked me to um, to write a book. So it started out as being much more behaviorally focused, and then uh, through time and, and edits and improvements, it became a, a real combination of applying behavioural finance insights to fund investing. Uh, And the reason I think that became so important to me as I was designing and writing it was fund investing is something that most investors do. Um, It's incredibly difficult to do well, so a real unique decision-making challenge. And there's just not that much written about the specific challenges of fund investing. There's lots about you should be passive, you should be active, but not about these are the unique features of fund investing, and this is where we go wrong, what should we do about it? But the aim of the book was to say, these are the beliefs we generally all hold about fund investing, where are they right, where are they wrong, and these are the behaviors that we carry out, um, that often to our detriment through time, how can we do it? do it better?
0: Yeah, and by the way, I don't think this is just for retail investment, I mean, this can be, this is a book that, you know, do-it-yourself investors and professional investors, I think, can learn from.
1: Yeah, that was certainly the hope in writing. It was to try and pitch it at the right spot. So a broad range of different types of fund investors could get different things from it.
0: You start the book with a story of um, the once famous fund manager, Neil Woodford. Can you just talk about that story and what the major lesson is from his rise and fall?
1: Absolutely. So Neil Woodford is is and was, I think, the most famous fund manager in the UK. He built his reputation through the, the tech bubble avoiding, um, the damaging losses in that area and then the financial crisis through 2007, 2008, um, where he avoided banking stocks. So Chip generated stellar returns and a fantastic reputation in the UK. He was running over 30 billion sterling in UK equities. Um, everyone owned the fund, everyone owned Neil Woodford's funds in the UK. Um, he then moved from on the back of that success. He moved from like, a large asset manager. He worked for Invesco to his own shop. So he had his name above the door of Woodford Investment Management, which I think is always a good warning sign if someone puts their name on the door of a fund management company. Um, And he was initially successful and investors followed in their their droves. Um, He was doing relatively similar things, but he did have an increasing predilection for small, unquoted companies. Now, he built his reputation on buying large companies, um, particularly areas like tobacco and pharmaceuticals is where he'd made a lot of money, but he was becoming increasingly distracted by small and unquoted names, which is very unusual to sit within um a UK retail mutual fund, much more akin to, to venture capital investing. Um so this was storing up a liquidity issue. And he didn't really have any proven skill set in investing in these names either. So this was, this was a deep daily dealing strategy as well. So a large multi-billion pound daily dealing strategy with an increasing exposure to small unquoted companies, often in areas like like bio, biotech. And obviously liquidity problems are very well hidden when a fund's in inflow and performing well, but that changes very dramatically um, when it reverses. So performance deteriorated, then a narrative around Woodford change, so there's far more attention on the smaller unquoted positions. The fund went into to outflow. And obviously when a fund a large fund is an outflow and you've got significant exposure to small and unquoted companies, you can't sell those names. So you sell more of your large liquid names and then the skew of the portfolio um, increases towards those small unquoted names. So we ended up preaching certain limits for exposure to those companies and just got trapped in a, in essence, a negative death spiral, which ended in him being sacked by the, the ACD or trustee of the fund that he was running and that bore his name. And in the end, the, the firm. Closing down as well, and the the, the sadness of the tale really is that not only was performance poor for all the investors who followed him, um, but they are still have they still have some of their capital locked into this fund as Mm -hmm. the um, the administrators and others look to wind down the positions and fully liquidate the funds. So it's been a disastrous situation for investors in that fund who are still locked into years later to what was meant to be a daily dealing fund. And there are so so many lessons from this, this type of story. Um, I think the, the key lesson is that performance, a strong performance in mutual funds and charisma and narratives can totally blind us to what is happening underneath the fund and make us totally negligent, um, willfully or unwillfully to the risks that are being stored up in the strategy. So this was a, yeah, disastrous situation for. Uh, the investors in the fund and also for the UK fund management industry as well, because as I said, he was um, the most famous fund manager in the UK.
2: I guess I'm gonna have to go take my name off my door now. Um, <laughs> I, I work in my house, so it's even weirder that I have it there. But uh, but uh, you opened the you opened the book by talking about three reasons that fund selection can be so challenging. I'm wondering if you could just quickly highlight those before we dig into it in a little more detail.
1: Yeah, so fund selection, I think is just a decision-making nightmare. It's just so hard to do well. Um, you think about where a decision is relatively easy. So if you're choosing what refrigerator to buy or what TV to buy, what you want is, um, a narrow range of options and you want some criteria, which you think correlates to the quality of the, of the thing you're buying relative to the price you're paying and fund selection is just the, the total opposite of that situation. You've got so much choice. You've got thousands of funds from vanilla passive market cap weighted funds to um, very aggressive thematic story-based funds and everything in between. So there's a huge array of choice, which is ever, ever increasing. You also got loads of noise, so constant market noise, distracting us from what we should be thinking about and telling us that we're investing in the wrong funds. Maybe we should try something, something different with better short-term performance. And then we've got the criteria. So we don't really know. What the most important criteria is when assessing a fund, and we typically use the wrong criteria as well. So we think about past performance, which is a terrible guide um, to assessing whether a manager has skill or the ability to generate future strong performance. In many cases, so it, it makes it a really difficult decision, and one where the worst of our investing behaviours um, are typically highlighted.
2: You uh, you talked early in the book about this idea of star fund managers, and that actually strikes a chord because our last episode before you was an episode on Madoff, and you know. That's probably the most egregious example of people investing in a star fund manager and the thing going south on them. Why do you think we want to invest as people? Why do we want to invest with star managers? I think
1: the starting point is, as usual, there's a compelling narrative. So the star fund manager is salient and they're present and they're available to us. So we're aware of them and they have a narrative built around them through typically media coverage, but other avenues of work as well about how skillful they are as an investor. Um, it's a terrible idea to invest in star fund managers because you tend to invest in them once they're a star. So that means they'll have extremely strong performance, often a portfolio on very high valuations. Um, they'll be running too much money so that their asset flows means they can no longer invest as they used to do because their assets are just too high. Um, and there's also issues around hubris and circle of competence. So the hubris of a fund manager who has become a star generating the majority of revenues for the company they work for, being fated um, in all sorts of publications, being asked for their opinions and all sorts of uh, investment related topics, whether it's inside their circle of competence or not. That hubris often leads to them doing things like in the Woodford case, outside of what core skill set may be. So you've got all this confluence of factors that you get with staff fund managers, which just makes the odds of success for you as an investor. Uh, investing in a staff fund manager, very, very poor um my general rule is if a manager is already a star then you're too late you've missed that one You should move on to something else
2: yeah i was thinking about when i was reading that chapter i was thinking about it and there's so many examples of this i was thinking about paulson like when he got the financial crisis right and then you know his performance after that didn't work out you know you think about like back in the day cgm focus and the fair home fund and like all these funds that these star managers came out and then you know typically it doesn't it doesn't go as well after that um you know there's so many examples of it
1: yeah i mean obviously arc is and kathy wood is a is a recent example of that star manager culture and um, the narrative built up around art because of business um, and of stratospheric returns and incredibly high valuations that that, that that led to.
2: One of the things you do a good job of in the book is at the end of every chapter, there's sort of a checklist on how to deal with these specific problems. And, and you had a really good one at the end of the fund manager, or the star manager chapter. Can you talk a little bit about how the checklist of how people can deal with, like deciding whether to invest with a star fund manager?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, th- I think it's, useful to take, take the even verse here. Um, and when you're looking at staff fund managers, it's easier to tell when their past performance is unlikely to be repeated in the future by just looking at a few different areas. So performance is unusually strong. So very high excess returns, which are not reasonable relative to the, the history of, of active fund management, even successful active fund managers. So if a good active fund manager with skill generates 2% 2% annualized alpha over the long-term. If you're buying into a manager who's annualized at 5 or 10% over a, a decent period of time, that should be concerning because these things tend to mean revert. Allied to that are valuations for the positions they hold unusually high. Um, you often get that combination of revaluations re- of the stocks they hold, leading to very strong performance for those valuations coming back down to, to earth. Another really important thing is have assets grown considerably? I think this is an area which fund investors often miss or don't think about enough, is that if a manager is running a $100 million portfolio, it's a very different proposition in terms of the opportunity set and flexibility to running a, a $10 billion portfolio or more. So when your asset size grows, your opportunity set shrinks. There is no way a manager has delivered returns with a small AUM, can deliver the same eight, um, returns with a much larger AUM. Um the final point is are they doing something different? And you see this all the time with staff fund managers or prominent fund managers, because they've got so much power and influence, they can try to turn their hand to anything they want to do so. So they might have a core skill set in a certain area of empty markets, for example, but then they'll go to a different region or different um cap size or different style, um, just because they can. And if we can find investment skill in anything what we should know about it is very specific and it's very narrow. So when someone starts to move outside of that circle of competence, we cannot trust their their track record in any way in being indicative of what might be delivered in the future. So there are things I think about. And when one, two, or three of those things are in place, the odds are heavily stacked against us having good outcomes.
2: Yeah. on that issue of extremely good performance, I, I always think back to that Howard Marks thing he talks about all the time, which is the idea that, you know, the way to be the top 1% fund long-term is to be in the top 25% consistently, not to, you know, blow the market away and try to be in the top 1% every year. And so a lot of times, and you, you can disagree, but maybe these funds that are a little bit more consistent and not at the top of the spectrum, you know, might do better long-term.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very, generally very wary of extremes in markets. I think extremes of anything lead to kind of very significant risks and opportunities as well on the other side. But actually, when a manager's gone through an extreme period of poor performance, investors tend to be queuing up to earth to take that opportunity.
2: You talk in the uh, in the book about the misalignment of incentives and how the incentives of fund managers sort of are sometimes not tied with the incentives of their investors. Can you talk a little bit about how that works?
1: Yeah, I think this is really important. So there's been in recent years a conflation of the of the view that low fees are very important and market cap allocation to equity investing is the best way to invest. Um, the idea on fees is incontrovertibly true, the compounding of high fees. Um, it's incredibly important and damaging over the long term to low fees matter. However, you're allocating your assets. Um, what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, maybe a little more is market cap allocations being the best or one of the best ways to invest. Um, market cap is fine and I'm not criticizing people for doing that in, in any way, cause it's very sensible for lots of people, but the evidence does suggest over the long term that there are perhaps better ways. And, um, the market cap approach will go through periods for long periods of underperformance. So what moves the needle on market cap relative to whatever else you want to do, whether it's fundamentally weighted, whether it's a QVM tilt on it uh, or any other type of smart beta adjustments to market cap weight, or indeed an equal weight approach, what moves the needle is the success of the largest companies. So in every, any spell or era where mega caps dominate, as we've seen in the US until recently for, for quite a long period of time, a market cap approach will be incredibly difficult to beat is most of the companies in that market are underperforming uh, by virtue of those large names dominating the returns. And if that reverses, then the opposite is true. So when mega caps underperform, it becomes much easier for um, active managers or active strategies, whatever that might be, to outperform a market cap, a market cap weighted index. And that's what we've seen in, in the UK up until 2022, where the largest companies in the UK market in the FTSE All Share. Were laggards and medium-sized companies significantly outperformed. And that's why far more active strategies outperformed in the in the UK whilst the reverse was happening in the US market. And there was a, there was a great study that showed between, I think it was 1968 to 2011, any reasonable allocation approach or unreasonable allocation approach um, other than market cap outperformed it, even picking stocks based on their Scrabble scores. And that's just because SMID companies... Small and medium-sized companies did better, Um, so it weighed on the performance of market cap investing, and that will inevitably happen again. Markets move in cycles, things will get, the elastic will get stretched and then it'll snap back and go in the other direction. So I'm not arguing at all that market cap investing is a a bad way to invest. It isn't, it's absolutely fine for for many people. But I think it's really important just to be clear that we should not conflate low fees and um, market cap allocation arguments because they're, they're very different things and It's also important for market cap based investors to be aware of the fact that there will be a period when people are saying, and it's hard to believe now, but people are saying, why are you doing market cap weighting? Why aren't you equally weighting? Why aren't you fundamentally weighting? Because the performance profile changes. And so if you want to stick with your investment approach for the long term, you need to understand when it will work well and when it won't work so well.
2: You touched on something that I struggle with a lot because on one hand, you know, we're active managers, but on one hand, we pretty much tell people, you know, most people should be passive. Most people should just buy the market cap weighted indexes because they beat, you know, most fund managers over time. But also when you dig into the data, like you said, equal weighting beats market cap weighting, pretty much value weighting, pretty much anything beats market cap weighting over the long term. So it's it's this balance between on one hand, it seems pretty obvious you should index and use, you know, market cap weights. And on the other hand, it seems pretty obvious you shouldn't. So how do you think investors should think about that?
1: Yeah, it's a really really good question. I think about it a lot. So I think it's important for investors not to be complacent about the success of market cap approaches. Um, And low-cost factor-weighted portfolios should be an option for any investor who has the time and inclination to do so. Um, And that doesn't mean that you need to bet the whole farm on a specific approach, but you might want to combine a market cap approach with certain other low-cost factor-weighted approaches that have got proven long-term efficacy. And for more sophisticated investors uh, probably want to pay attention to the performance and valuation of a market cap weighted index uh, compared to an equally weighted index, for example, as a useful indicator to excesses in, in either direction, um, because that will likely have an impact on the, the future relative long-term returns of, of different approaches.
2: This always brings me back to what Jim O'Shaughnessy said when he's on our, our podcast, which is that there's sort of two points of failure for an investor. One point is when the market's down, they sell at the wrong time. The other is when they're underperforming, they sell. And, you know, that second point, I think, gets at this idea of index investing versus, you know, using some sort of other weighting thing. It seems like investors who are going to follow the benchmark and really keep track of it a lot, they probably should be using a market cap weighted index, whereas ones who are more comfortable with deviation should potentially maybe go the other way. I mean, do you think that's right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely critical for, so i would tell you, for anyone who wants to invest actively, and there's a spectra of active investing. It's not, people tend to think of high conviction, high cost active, but obviously any approach, a low cost factor tilt is still active against a, a market cap approach. And, but anyone who wants to take active risk, they need to be behaviorally disposed to the realities of that. So the worst thing you can do is invest in active strategies and then panic at times of short-term underperformance, because you'll just destroy returns. So you need to accept that any active strategy will underperform and probably underperform the long spells um, and you need to have a long-term view. If you don't have those things, um, then it makes sense just to stick as close to neutral as possible. But I think one of the other things I tried to get across in the book is that it's not as if, again, there's a spectrum here, but if we take a binary definition, you've got active and passive investors. It's not as if active investors have all of the behavioral problems and passive investors just sit there and could ignore all of them. Because even if you look at 2022, I imagine there's lots of Passive investors, which I've seen written about a lot, invest in 60, 40 passive strategies that have shot lights out and incredibly well going through a difficult 2022 and then doubting their approach. And is there too much duration in this, this strategy? Do I want to be passive in my fixed income allocation? If inflation is high, if interest rates are, are rising, so you still have the same issues. Um, and we still need to be behaviorally aware of the advantages and disadvantages of, of any strategy that we're investing in. If we are a market cap weighted equity investor, we need to know that if there's a bubble in a certain country, then our market cap approach will be a stuff full of that, of that country at a time when expected returns from that country will be incredibly low. You just think about during the Japanese equity bubble about how much of global indices were made up of very expensive Japanese stocks during that time. So we need to be aware of the, the limitations and the advantages of any, any strategy.
2: Yeah. To your point, if I'm, even if I'm a passive investor in say 2000, you know, I might be sitting there in my 60, 40 portfolio. I might be looking at ARK and, and I'm thinking, why am I not invested in this? Like, why am I in my passive? So it's not like only active investors track themselves against some, some other benchmark of some kind.
1: No, absolutely. That's absolutely true.
2: I want to ask you about where active funds are better. You know, some people, a lot of the times you'll see people say like, for instance, in the bond area, like active funds might be better than passive funds. I mean, I mean there are certain areas or are certain asset classes where active funds are better than passive funds
1: yes good question so i definitely think it's a spectrum i would say equities, quality value momentum tilted fund with low tracking over to market cap that's still an active fund but it's very different to a high conviction more expensive discretionary active strategy um so i think it's helpful not to talk necessarily in binary terms about the different different options that investors have but i think there are obvious areas or certainly historically obvious areas, areas like high yield bonds, where the cost of passive replication due to index rebalancing costs and the the nature of the high yield market, I mean, it's often, or can be suboptimal to take a pure passive approach. Um, but yeah, going back to my earlier point, I think there's, um, there's two layers to the question about when an active fund is better than an index. One is, um, about the specific features of a, of a given market, um, but the second is the the behavioural point again. So, only take significant active risk if you are behaviorally disposed to doing so. So, long term, willing to bear underperformance. Um, the the worst thing you can do is own high conviction active funds without appreciating the realities of doing so. Uh, and you have to accept that the funds you invest in will not outperform every year. I see lots of lots of comments about consistent active fund performance and runs of performance, which is just random noise and market trends it's not about a manager with the ability to read the ruins of what markets will do every year so those kind of false expectations about we can outperform every year and not go through periods of really difficult returns um incredibly misleading and just lead to terrible behaviors through time that just stack up to, to very high costs
2: going back to the madoff episode we just did one of the things you talk about in the book is this idea about how smooth performance can sometimes be a red flag and you know that's probably the most extreme example of smooth performance being a red flag, but why is smooth performance a red flag and h- how can investors sort of look at these smooth track records and evaluate them?
1: Yes, good question. I feel like Cliff Asnes has stolen my thunder on this uh, this topic. Um, I think There's two, two issues here, the way investors view it and the way that it's sold. So the way investors view it is it's behaviorally incredibly culpable owning a fund with smooth performance because our behavior is generally um, related to fluctuations in value of our investments, uh, particularly the downward fluctuations in our investments. So if we don't experience that, and if we don't see it, then we're far less likely to act and make poor decisions based on it. Um, it's much more comfortable going through a difficult period like 2022, if you're investing in private equity funds, uh, which are not marking to, to market, uh, relative to public equity funds, which, which clearly are, um, so behaviourally much easier to own a smooth performance fund, um. But that entirely belies what's going on underneath A public equity fund and a private equity fund owning very similar things. It's just the way they're priced and valued that is different. Um, so it can lead investors to pricing methodology difference for a difference in the underlying risk and economic sensitivity of what they're investing in. So it can be very misleading. And I think the way it's sold at times is very poor as well. I think I often see claims. This is not just private equity, but it's probably the most prominent example when We see comments about it being diversifying, about sharp ratios, about low volatility, low drawdown. And you think, hang on a minute, this is investing in exactly the same stuff as the public equity funds. Why is it diversifying? And the only reason it's diversifying is because of the pricing methodology. Um, And I think if you want to invest in that kind kind of structure, by all means do so, but it shouldn't be sold based on the pricing methodology as a cloak for um, some kind of genuine diversification, because clearly, in many cases, diversification is just illusory. And there will be times when the market is under severe stress, when um, correlation, that low correlation, um, uh, tends very strongly towards towards one. So, I think investors often become complacent about the genuine risks of a fund when they see smooth performance.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know if you sort of look at like the unprofitable tech basket of public securities. It's been a crazy, crazy ride in those types of companies, and then if you look at sort of the private ones that are of similar size, you know, not as crazy of a ride. In reality, it is as crazy of a ride, but in terms of how it's being reported, it's not. And you're like, like you said, it's kind of a balance. Like to some degree, that's better maybe because investors aren't panicking. But on the other side, like if you're an investor, maybe you're not seeing the reality of what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, they're definitely behavioral lessons here in that not checking your portfolio every day and living through uh, the fluctuations in value is a great way to be a a long-term investor. Um, Private equity is a a fairly expensive way of doing it, but it does teach us that um, locking ourselves in for the long term and sticking in our seats and not not experiencing that volatility is is very useful behaviorally.
2: Picking up on the idea of risk, you talk in the book about how volatility may not be the best measure of risk. Can you talk about why that is and maybe what some other ways to measure risk might be?
1: Yes, good question. So I I see volatility as... um, a reasonable measure of risk, but not risk in itself. I think the industry has moved towards volatility being the only or the preeminent measure of risk and everything comes through that volatility number. Unless we've already talked about in areas with smooth pricing or different pricing methodologies, then volatility is a close to useless measure of risk in any, any reasonable way. Um, so there's a, there's a plethora of different ways of thinking about risk. I know lots of, um. Long-term fundamental investors will say risk is just the chance of permanent capital impairment, which again, I think it has merit and that is definitely a risk, but it's not the only type of risk. Um, I would define risk in a very nebulous way as to start with as for any individual investor, risk is about the failure to meet our objectives um, and the risk we take in not meeting those objectives. So volatility will be part of that. Permanent capital impairment will be part of that. Um, and they're just a, I think using a range or mosaic of different factors, both fundamental and maybe more quantitative, to think about, think about risk, um, is incredibly important. But it's really, really critical not to be pinned down by a single, limited number in your assessment of of risk.
2: And, and to your point, it seems like it would be very specific to the individual investor. So, for example, Buffett probably could care less about volatility the way he doesn't, he's not going to look at his portfolio every day. It doesn't matter. But then if you've got like a very jumpy investor who's monitoring their portfolio every day, you know, volatility might be a great measure of risk for them because they're going to bail on their strategy when it's, when it's out of favor.
1: That's absolutely right. And the the, the people who entirely dismiss volatility and will say it's just permanent capital impairment, neglect the behavioral aspect of living through that volatility. So the behavioral reality of living through something that's highly volatile, doesn't impair capital over the over the long term or it doesn't matter they don't impair capital over the long term because in the short term you've sold it because the volatility was so high it was too painful if you to hold on to so all these different risk factors matter in different ways and we should put them together in a in a sensible way but not rely on any given one as as risk and you're absolutely right different investors will weight different risk factors um in in their own in their own particular ways
2: i always think about when, when people talk about that i always think about that amazon chart people put up On Twitter all the time, which is basically like you see this four hundred thousand percent return or whatever it is, but then you know it's as if somebody could have stuck with it, you know, during the ninety percent drawdowns that came, you know, during that. And so you have to like put that chart that just looks like it's up and to the right over the long term in the context of what you had had to go through to get there.
1: Just imagine the the trough of that of that performance. What what would have been being written and said about the company and how you would have been feeling about it? I mean. Probably the only people who would have held it through that period who, were those who um, couldn't sell it they on some kind of stock option program or who bought it and forgotten about it. It was a tiny piece of their portfolio, so didn't get around to do anything about it. But so far, it's just not realistic to think people would, would sit through those, those spells in most cases.
0: Probably Jeff uh, Bezos and his parents are the only ones.
2: <laughs> and uh, Michael Mobison, right? He, he said in some interviews, he actually held Amazon the whole time, but he's definitely in the minority.
0: Yeah, but very few. You have, um, one of the chapters in the book is sort of dedicated to this idea of simple versus complex. And, you know, a lot of times in investing, the complexity of things is, we think it's better. You kind of were making the point in the book that, you know, investors should, in most cases, choose simple over complex.
1: I think the principle for me here is, the first principle was don't invest in things that you don't understand. So you should always know how what you're investing in makes money and be able to describe it. Usually be able to describe it to a, to a 10-year-old is a good... A good rule of thumb for these things, um, because the more complex, and that doesn't mean you have to always choose the simplest option, but there is often a heavy cost for complexity and for us not understanding how something works. Um, so we need to make sure that we always understand what we're investing in, because if we don't, then we just become ever more reliant on performance. So we don't understand what's happening in the black box of a particular fund. So we just rely on the, the historic performance. Which is likely to hugely understate risk and the more complex something is the more interconnected interconnected parts there are and you have this web of interconnected parts which compounds the risk of disaster of things going badly wrong so yeah it doesn't mean i wouldn't say that you should always go for the simplest options because clearly there are things that have developed and progressed in the investment world that can enhance your your long run results but be very wary of investing in things when you don't understand it's really difficult because Complexity sells, complexity is higher margin. And we like to invest in complex things because it makes us feel smart. We don't want to say, actually, I don't really understand how that works. But generally speaking, if you ask yourself that question and if you can't completely describe how something works, then you should probably stay away from it.
0: Yeah, it seemed like, uh, you know, we've had, I don't know, maybe 70 guests on the podcast. And, you know, that does tend to come up a lot, like keeping things simple and understanding what you're investing in. Because if you don't, understand it then you know the chances of you bailing when things go bad are probably higher than if you do understand it it you believe in it um you have another chapter in the book on and i'll read the chapter here it's great stories make for awful investments why is that
1: i think of story-based investing as being like momentum investing but with the stuff that makes momentum investing work taken out so you have you have the um momentum um, for story-based investing on the upwards of momentum, but you take out the rules and you take out the discipline. Um so the things that make momentum investing work you don't have. Um so story investing I think can be terribly, terribly damaging for investors. Um we are susceptible to stories. We are a storytelling species, everything is about stories, so it's no different for for investors. Uh, and we latch on to stories that are exciting and captivating that are making money. Um, problem is that we often mistake story being true for being one that you'll make money out of. Um, and that's very often not the case. Um, stories are damaging in, and stories in particular thematically orientated funds are, are damaging, I think for three reasons. One is that we, we're generally too late by well, the time time a story based fund orientated fund has been launched, then clearly everybody knows about it, um, so it's um, we we're riding very late to that particular party. Um, it's generally too expensive, so it is very much in the price when everyone is aware of this compelling story and narrative formed incredibly well. It's too expensive. Expected future returns are are much lower, but we're busy extrapolating what's gone on over the past five years or or, or whatever the period is, and because stories are so beguiling, they're so exciting. We tend to invest too much in it. So we'll bet the whole farm on a story that we that we believe in, whether it's um, the growth of brick funds, which I write about in the book, or whether it's uh, the hyper growth stories of the last, uh, particularly the last five years. Because when performance, this is vicious circle where because performance is strong, we think that's validating the story. And then the story is captivating. So that leads to more money going into the stocks. Uh, and that leads to forwards becoming even stronger, which further validates the story. But there's this vicious circle, which goes on until it doesn't. Um, so I think if you invest in a, in a story or a theme, you need to understand that what you're doing is investing in a, a momentum trade, which is fine. And momentum investing is proven over the very long term to work well, provided you behave appropriately and you select, set the correct disciplines and rules around how you trade that, um, momentum investing without those uh, guardrails is is a very dangerous and costly thing.
0: What are some ways that investors can protect themselves from being influenced too much by these stories?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the, again, similar to staff fund managers, always think about past performance and valuations. So incredibly strong past performance, unusually strong past performance is a signal that this has run away from itself and. Everyone else is excited about the, the same story as much as you are. You don't have anything different to anyone else. And if valuations are very expensive as well, that's probably the best indicator we can get of future returns being, um, at best, underwhelming. I think also because we are, it's, it's really easy to say, ignore stories, don't get sucked into them. But everything we do in investing is a story. Everything's related to a story. To um, so thematic funds and the like are just a, a subset of that, a particularly exciting subset of that. So I think as we, are, as we are storytellers, I think one way of just thinking about it is just try and tell a different story in your approach to investing. So frame your own ex- investment decision-making as a different type of story where you're going to avoid those excesses. You're going to be more deliberate and focused in your approach and you're going to profit from the, the behavioral mistakes that other investors who are being beguiled by a particular story are going to, going to make. So we can't, um we can't ignore stories we can't um, avoid that being an important part of how we invest but better to to write our own stories about how we're going to behave rather than get sucked in by the latest investment fad which is almost inevitably going to never speak, gonna cost us money somewhere down the line
0: how do you think of concentration risk when you're looking at funds um i mean you can have funds that are extremely diversified like the S&P 500 or you can have a fund that might hold you know 30 securities so when when might concentration be appropriate for the investor?
1: Yeah, so I think the it's one of the things I've changed my mind on and flipped around on through my through my career. Um, I think there are two issues with or two problems stemming from very concentrated funds. And that's a problem of what you do own and the problem of what you don't own. So the problem of what you do own is you have a higher weighting in a particular stock or a particular area of the market. And um, with the best will in the world, um, there are, unknown issues problems that may occur to these companies we cannot confidently predict the future and if something goes wrong that's outside of your awareness or outside of your your modeling or your understanding then you can lose a great deal of money in a short space of time and it can be incredibly hard to to recover from that so the risk to concentration from being overly focused on certain areas of the market or certain stocks is can be pronounced the second part i suppose sorry just the the adjunct to that is Being diversified is an acceptance of the fact we cannot predict the future. And there are many known, known unknowns and unknown unknowns out there. So we want to be diversified to prepare for a different range of, a wide range of potential outcomes. If we knew the future, then we'd only hold one security. We don't. So diversification is an expression of that. The other thing that people don't think about with concentrated funds is the, the damage of what you don't own. So there'll be scenarios where you had a very concentrated subset of the market, might be asset class or uh, underlying stocks. But there's another area of the market that dominates returns for a prolonged period and you don't hold any exposure to that area. So it can be very risky, even if the, the stocks or areas that you're invested in don't blow up or end in disaster, but other areas dominate market returns. And you don't have any exposure to that. So I think you should always ask yourself with regard to concentration, how susceptible are you? Is your positioning to the failure of one thing, one position, one theme one fund and how vulnerable are you to areas that you don't have exposure to performing incredibly, incredibly well. So my approach to it would be, again, this is dependent on your attitude and appetite for for risk, but generally speaking, if you want to invest in concentrated individual funds, that's okay. So, um, you have a wider range of outcomes there. So, um, maybe your potential for outperforming is better, but you should remain diversified so invest in a range of different concentrated funds. So you're reducing the risk of any given position or any given um, view dominating your overall outcome. So combining different strategies. So in aggregate, you're diversified in reducing some of those
0: um, sharp edges from concentration. So we can totally relate because we run pretty concentrated quantitative strategies and we don't have a lot of technology. So, <laughs> you know, like the last decade up until, well, last year, at least, we were looking very different, and that that was part of that concentration risk. I mean, we were basically like a small mid cap value type of manager, and very low on technology. So when the tech was going crazy, you know, we were pretty dramatically underperforming. Anyways, to your point. Thank you. Um, you had in the ch- in the uh, chapter on risk and volatility, you had this interesting chart, and I'm going to drop this in. The podcast, if you're okay with it, but you looked at risk in the context of disaster and disappointment. Can you just talk to that?
1: Yeah. So one way I think it's, it's quite useful for, for investors to think about risk away from volatility and the, the things we talked about a little earlier is think about risk as, as I said, about the chances of meeting or failing to meet our long run objectives. And I think there's two ways that investors can fail to meet their objectives. One is through disasters and one is through disappointment, so disasters are those rapid losses. So they might be investing in a concentrated fund where we've got a very high allocation to a certain stock, um, or certain asset class, and that goes badly wrong or certain theme or stories. And so we lose money very quickly and it's very difficult to, to recover those, those losses. Also things like investment frauds as well will, will be in that bucket where we have a high impact, very quick, um, and pernicious um, losses for our portfolios. So there's dead disasters, which are hard to recover from. Uh, The other part of that, which are not as salient and not as visible or or obvious to us are the disappointments. So we failed to meet our long run investment objectives because of a slow bleed of disappointing outcomes and disappointing decisions. And that's really, this is really about negative compounding. So the problem of costs. And how we want to think about costs being compounded through time. So on any given day, month, or year, we don't really notice it. But then when we get to the end of our 30-year investment period, we can observe this has been a material cost for us, and this is why we haven't met our target. So that might be things like higher fees compounding through time, but it's also behavioral as well. So what we see fund investors tend to do is buy into funds after a strong three-year period of performance, uh, selling out a fund that's underperformed for three years. And then wearing the mean reversion of those strategies and mincing and repeating that perpetually, and heading up at a very, a very high cost through time. But at any given point when we're making those changes, we actually feel quite good about it. So when we're selling a lagar fund and buying the one that shot the lights out, we feel good about it. It's only as we go through time and look back at, this is what would happen if we hadn't have done that, that do we realize the cost that we've incurred. So those slow creeping costs can be, um. Ividious and, and very damaging to our to our long run returns. It's not just the the big high profile disasters that can can cost us.
0: Yeah, in the chapter on past performance, you wrote, despite the dangers, most fund investors still only buy funds with strong recent performance. A preferred metric for selecting funds puts the odds against us right from the start. I mean, it's so obvious that performance chasing is bad, but most investors do it. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's ubiquitous and, and terrible and uh, everyone acknowledges it, but still does it anyway. And it, I think it's, it's about incentives and probably more incentive. Well, it's a couple of things. One is incentives and one is the difficulty of identifying skills. So we use a, a heuristic. The incentives are, if everyone cares about past performance and everyone makes decisions on past performance, then you have to too. So everyone is involved in playing the game. So. If the committee you're reporting to cares about past performance, if your boss cares about past performance, if the regulator cares about past performance, then you will too. And the easiest way to survive in the industry is to manage that past performance. So sell the ones that underperform for the last three years, buy the funds that have done well, and don't lose your job in the process. Um, So if everyone believes in past performance, and it, it often feels odd because when you say, well, past performance is really not that. Important or addictive of skill, people will say, "Well, why are you investing in funds and if you're, you don't care about performance?" But that's, that's the wrong way to look about it. All you're saying is, performance, historic performance, is not a good guide to the thing you're trying to find, which is some kind of edge or some kind of some kind of skill. Um, but it's it's inescapable, and uh, the other point is away from kind of incentives and surviving in the in the industry is. Identifying skill or an edge. It's really hard to do, it's really hard to do confidently. And it's much easier to fall back on the heuristic of this has done well over the last three years. It's outperformed on 80% of the, of quarters. I'm going to invest in that fund and you're probably not, not going to get fired for doing it. Um, if you invest in the fund that's struggling or going through a difficult period, even if lots of things stack up and it continues to do badly, then you look like an idiot and maybe lose your job. So all the incentives and the, and the, and the simplicity is pointed at being still being obsessed with with past performance. And if you look around you, I mean, everything is still everything in the industry is obsessed with past performance. Everything that's written about the industry is, is still about past performance. And everyone
0: um, is involved in the game of extrapolating that. How do you, when you're looking at a fund manager, what or how do you define or how are you f- trying to figure out? if they have an edge, if they have skill, what specifically do you look for?
1: Yeah, that's just, that's just a really important question. Um, so very simple terms. I think you need to look at three things. There are three parts to doing it. Um, we were go. there's no point going into the weeds on this forensic due diligence. Let's think about the top level, what should you, you be thinking about this? One of the first part is beliefs. So does the manager or strategy have, or is it based on, Some clear evidence backed beliefs as to why the strategy that's being adopted might have an edge. If you don't have a foundation as to why something might have a distinctive edge that might add to returns through time, then you can just give up there. There needs to be something that you can evidence and judge as a starting point. I see lots of strategies that don't have any kind of distinctive beliefs about what they're doing. It might be kind of nebulous terms like growth at reasonable price, but not telling you what the the edges is it informational? Is it analytical? Is it behavioural? What's what's the edge that you're trying to to exploit as a starting point? The next point linked this, intrinsically linked to that is process. Is there a clear and repeatable process that captures the inefficiencies identified in the belief? So we've identified this problem in markets is inefficiency in markets, um, and this is the process we're adopting. And these are the decision steps that we're adopting. This is how we're sourcing information. This is how we're analyzing that information, this is how we're making decisions about that information that captures the inefficiencies identified. Can they do that with a consistent, repeatable process? And then the final point is outcomes. So are the outcomes consistent with beliefs and process? And by outcomes, I don't mean you look at past performance um, and then say, if past performance is good, then the beliefs and process must be good because it's not. It doesn't tell you anything about the beliefs and process being robust over the, over the long term, But what you want to see is, are the decisions being made by the manager or the strategy, are the outcomes of that strategy, um, consistent with the beliefs and process? Does it validate the process I am. Um, does it make money? If I'm a manager that makes money from depressed stocks and you think there's a behavioral inefficiency in markets because they, depressed stocks get beaten up because of the, uh, the momentum, the negative momentum and the negative narratives around them. Do you invest in stocks which hit that bill, and do they tend to revalue on average more than more than fifty percent with some with positive asymmetry in that? Can I see that in the in the process, irrespective of whether the fund has outperformed over the last three years or not? Can I see in the outcomes that type of that type of activity, that type of behaviour? Um, and I think you need to and quants also like things like hit rates and win loss ratios to give you some more information on that, which are useful but limited. I think those three things are absolutely critical. And I think with any fund, you need to be able to ask the question, can I make a strong case for investing in it? If I had not seen headline performance over the last five years, can I make a strong case for that? And if you can't, I think you're, you're struggling to, to have the sufficient conviction in a, in a strategy.
0: Yeah. You know, you, you kind of do this for your professional career, but in thinking about uh, ways that retail investors might be able to take what you just said and actually implement it. I'm wondering what you think about this. Like this is where client education is important. Like if I was investing in a mutual fund t- trying to take what you just said, I would probably want to go to that fund's website, look at the manager commentary over time look at the portfolio does the portfolio align with that manager's commentary and have they stuck to sort of their process over the long term through thick and thin that's one way that maybe you could try to even you know for for your you know average investor you could try to get at what you're you're saying i don't know what you think about that.
1: yeah i think that's right it goes back to uh, i think we said earlier about thinking that simple passive approaches are best for many many types of investor and that's because Doing active investing, however you think about it, is, is is very difficult, um, um, behaviorally difficult and often technically difficult as well. And pe- you need need time and often resource to to do it very well. Um. So so that speaks to the fact that in many cases, um, if all you've got to assess the performance of managers and to assess the quality of manager is just their recent returns, then it makes much more sense to take a passive approach. Is only if you've got the the inclination and wherewithal um, to invest actively um, that, that you should that you should think about doing it. And I think that um, you're absolutely right. So thinking thinking about the beliefs of the manager, the tenure of the manager, whether it's been consistently applied over the long term, whether it makes intuitive sense that there might be an advantage in investing in in this way or useful things to to think about. Um, I think for the for retail investors actually, it's also Really important if they're investing in active things to think about what not to do. It's it's easier to think about what to avoid than it is to what to invest in. So as we talked about a little bit already, retail investors, if they're investing in active funds, a checklist involving avoiding extreme outperformance, avoiding very high valuations and avoiding funds with very high level of assets is a very good rules of thumb to to avoid getting in situations when the odds are, are heavily tilted against you. And then the other thing. Just related to this question, which I think is fascinating is that as we've seen in sports over over the past decades, the explosion of, of metrics looking to disentangle luck from skill, whether that's in baseball or football or soccer. I mean, there is absolutely huge scope to do this better in investing. There is far more noise and less signal in investing, um, than in those games and sports i would mentioned. But there still is great potential to use data in an intelligent way to try and identify and decipher when someone has skill or when their results are a consequence of luck. And there's just lots more I'd like to do in it and lots more the industry I think can do around around um, quantitative analysis of of luck and skill metrics and investing.
0: Well, speaking of that, and I haven't looked at their methodology in a long time, but and I know it's evolved over time, but you know, you have Morningstar ratings on funds and at least a lot of a lot of the times when I see a five star fund, it absolutely is an outperforming fund. Um, so I think performance, risk adjusted performance, is pulled in. You know, rolling returns, consistency, outperformance over the market. These are just some of the things that I think they look at. But what are your thoughts in general on the Morningstar fund ratings?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I know they have a quant rating and a qualitative rating. Um, but I don't know. I don't know the, the intricacies of the of the quant rating. But I w- what I would say generally is that. Any rating, and you see lots of these ratings from different providers, any rating that is just reliant on past performance to assess a fund is is deeply flawed, um, the reasons I've already talked about you. The reason for investing in an active strategy is because you believe it has edge or skill, and the only way you can identify skill or edge is to link processes to outcomes. Is it a good or repeatable process? Does it lead on average to to good outcomes. If you're just looking at past performance, all you're looking at is outcomes. And we know there's a huge amount of luck and randomness and a lack of persistence in, in past performance. So to rely on that as a, as a measure of, of the quality of the fund is is deeply misleading. Lots of value-orientated strategies doing very sensible things until uh, 18 months ago would have look terrible from a Morningstar rating perspective if, if it was just based on, on past performance or any rating that was just based on past performance. Um doesn't mean the managers doesn't have skill. It means it was a difficult market environment for that type of that type of strategy. So we need to be very cautious, I think, of reading too much into anything that is ranking or rating funds based on historic returns.
2: I wrote an article a few years back where I tried to look at the Morningstar rating and try to say, can I improve on it? And you know, so many so much of what you've talked about today is qualitative stuff that would be very hard to put like in a quantitative rating. I mean, do you think if you and I were getting together and we wanted to create like a Morningstar five star type rating? using like quantitative data that actually would be somewhat predictive of the future? I mean, do you think we could do it? I mean, do you think there's variables we could look at that would help with that?
1: Yeah, this is something that has been on my mind a lot um, a lot recently. And I think there definitely is. And I think that always a good challenge for an investor is to think about whether a fund investor or a stock investor or a portfolio manager, if you had to systemize your process, systematize your process, how would you do it? Um, you had no qualitative input to it, you just have to create a systematic algorithm that made the decisions for you. How would you put that together? And and then comparing that to how you actually do it would give a lot of insights into what you think the let the human edges relative to the the quantitative parts of the process. So I think that's a useful discipline anyway. Um and I think but I think there's there's so much more to do in assessing the difference between luck and skill. There are things like that I'll look at in my day-to-day job, like hit rates and, and win-loss ratio for managers through torrent, things like consistency of approach through through style and other, other factors, there's comparisons to different allocation methodologies to, to judge whether managers manager's been good at allocating and sizing, sizing positions. So it does get quite granular. Um, but I think there's, there's just huge scope for looking at the data inside of um, performance, underneath performance and looking at the behavior of managers through time and making a better judgment at least on whether, whether there's evidence of, of skill or not. Um, but but the danger I think with lots of quantitative approaches is that all managers who have outperformed will look skillful based on the metrics you use. All managers who underperform will look like they don't have skill. And clearly we know that's, that's not the case. What you really want is to have a system where you can identify managers with skill, irrespective of what their three year returns might be within reason.
2: It's, it's tough because, you know, people use the Morningstar ratings for kind of two different things. You know, one is sort of how is the fun done in the past? And the other is what might it do in the future? You know, and, and if you, you sort of have to take those two things apart, you know, like for instance, if we came up with a system and we said, all right, here's this value manager, he's performed really poorly in the past five years, but he's stuck to the factors that drive his performance. You know, we expect him to do well. Like if we gave him a five-star rating with horrible recent performance, people would look at that and be like, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. So it's like, you always have to separate those two things out.
1: Yeah, it's really tough. And if you if you go to a, so you're presenting a manager or a fund to a committee, and might be a fantastic presentation and with uh, incredible tenure and beliefs and process, and then everyone will turn to the slide where it says the performance and they've underformed over the last five years. Uh, no one's going to sign that off. So it 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 great it, it just creates a real a real problem um, for investors who and and as I talked about earlier, the the industry in being heavily biased towards things that have been strongly performing in the, in the past and that applies to, to asset classes as, as well as we kind of, we lurch, we went from a, from a decade of emerging market equities being the only place to invest and the US being, um, in the doldrums, a laggard developed economy with no growth in it anymore, to a decade of the US equities being the only place to invest, and while the developed market and emerging market regions being a, a waste of time, Uh, and we forget that these things move in cycles, we just believe in the narrative of what's worked in most recent times, what's available to us, we kind of rinse and repeat that behavior. I'm sure there'll be a different type of investment strategy in a different type of region that works over the next 10 years. And we'll be focused on that and trying to get more exposure to to that region and building stories as to why that is the right place to invest after after the fact. Um, but it's just difficult to
0: escape the, um, I suppose the tyranny of, of, of past performance and how that affects our behavior. So, Joe, in closing, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor on how to select funds from all the research you did in your book, what would it be? And by the way, if you want to say go buy the book, I would be completely fine with it because I don't think there is one lesson. But I'll give you a shot at it. Go for it. I
1: won't be that brazen, but I will say that I think the most. I think the most important thing is, and this is for professional investors and private investors alike, is you have to. If you want good outcomes, you have to explicitly focus on your behavior. You have to explicitly focus on the decisions that you all make through time and create a plan for how you will behave. So when you go through difficult periods, what are you going to do? How are you going to rebalance your portfolio? How often are you going to check your portfolio or not check your portfolio? You need to make a concrete plan for how to deal with that. Because even if we make good investment decisions at the start, our behavior is likely to throw us off course through time. So we need to spend as much time thinking about our behavior as we might do thinking about the details of any particular fund investment we might make. The behavior matters just so much, much more than people people think it does.
0: Thank you, Joe. We wish you all the best with the book and um, continued success on your blog and your um, mission to educate and help investors. If people want to learn more about you, follow you on Twitter, get your research. Where can they go to learn more?
1: Yeah, they can go to behavioralinvestment.com, and that's behavioral spelt the English way with a, with a U in it for behavior. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Behavioral Joe.
0: Great. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.
1: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at Practical Quant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbineau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate